At this time, I would ask if you'd stand for the reading of God's Word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand there before you at the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Lord, we do again ask for your blessing here upon this word we pray as we turn our hearts to your word as you speak to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, grab your Bibles. Turn to Exodus 17. Exodus 17 is a passage that I just read. We're going to look at Exodus 17 a bit here together here this morning. My daughter... Uh, is now in college. She's in college, so about 15 years ago or so, she was about five years old, she came up to me and she said, uh, uh, Dad, where is God? And, you know, being a pastor, I was all excited that my daughter's asking where God is, and so I'm sitting thinking, okay, how can I say a real pious, good answer to this? So I said, well, honey, God dwells in my heart. And she says, God dwells in your heart? I said, yes. She says, I didn't know he was so small, very small in your heart, God's dwelling in the heart. That's a question, uh, where is God? Uh, I think where is God is a question that, that comes up very frequently, I believe for me as a pastor, I suspect for all of us who seek to do any kind of ministry or even ask people questions or talk with people about the Lord, where is God? Now, my daughter might have been asking the question locally, where is God? But most of us don't ask that question. When I hear that question from people, they're not asking, where physically is God? Where, where does God live? Where is God? When they say, where is God, it's in light of the tragedies in life, the difficulties in which they might have experienced uh, with a, a lost loved one, perhaps, or the ravaging of a disease, or the impact of uh, losing a job, or the struggles, or the tragedy in which we saw yesterday uh, right here nearby on uh, the shooting of those people. In those kind of situations, people cry out, where is God? And they're not looking for the theological, well, God is omnipresent, so he is everywhere. You know, that's not what they're looking for. They're asking a question, and they're asking the question, where is God? They're saying, where is he when things are so tough? Where is he when there has been this tragedy that we've just talked about? Where is he when my life is falling apart? They're not saying where physically. They're asking the question, does he care? 
Where is, okay, God's omnipresent, great. But does he care? Look at what's happened here just yesterday. Look at, I, I don't know many of you, but even some of the ones that I do, I know that there are horrid things happening in your life that cause us to ask the question, where is God? And the question there is constantly, does he care? The Israelites were asking that very same question when they turned to Exodus 17 as they were going along here. So if you follow along with me, all the congregation of the Israelites traveled from place to place. They went from the desert of sin, and that sounds like sin as in something bad, but that's just a translation error. So, or not translation error, that's just a transliteration. So don't concern yourself with that. They went on from the desert of sin, the wilderness of sin, by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. Now, when we hear according to the commandment of the Lord, it's easy for most of us to think that, well, they were following Moses, and Moses had a connection with God here, and God told Moses, hey, move from one spot to another. Well, only when we slow down, and many of you will know your scriptures to know this, that when, they, when we talk about that God directed them from one spot to the next, according to the commandment of the Lord, it wasn't just that somebody came up and said, hey, I have this sense that God wants us to move to Rephidim or something like that. No, there was actually a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the days for 40 years every single moment that the Israelites traveled from the time they exited Egypt, then on their way to Mount Sinai, and that's where we are in the story, incidentally. We, and if you know the biblical story, the Israelites have been freed from their bondage in Egypt. They've crossed through the Red Sea, and they're now on their way down to Mount Sinai where they will meet with the Lord. And so the Lord is guiding them along the way. Well, how did he do that? Then for 40 years, guiding them down to Sinai, and then as they wandered through the wilderness before they entered into the Canaan land, every minute of their existence, there was this massive pillar of fire or this massive pillar of cloud, a cloud that rose up. And when that cloud moved, when that cloud or that pillar of fire got up and moved, it was in the middle of the night or if it was during the day, when that pillar started to move, all the Israelites packed up and they went wherever that pillar was. That's where they were. When we're talking about the guidance of the Lord, they're talking about that, that Shekinah glory. That's the theological word for that manifestation of God's physical presence as he dwelt among his people. Imagine a, a massive cloud here. If you've ever seen the, uh, this is to the uh, skewing old here for a second, uh, the Ten Commandments movie with Charleston Heston. You remember that? Great uh, uh, CGI graphics. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but there was this big pillar of fire and a big pillar of cloud and all that kind of stuff. As they kind of wandered, as the Israelites moved through the place, they moved Every time, because they were following this massive pillar that was there. But they went to, the Lord, to Rephidim. Now, how did they get to Rephidim? Because that pillar moved to Rephidim, and it stopped right there. But Rephidim had a problem. There was no water for the people to drink. So in verse 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Now, in sympathy to the Israelites which is something that I think we have to do. If we're going to understand the biblical record, we have to understand here that the people that we're dealing with are the same people as you and I. When they didn't have any water to drink, it's easy for us to sit and think, well, you know, I've been thirsty. No, they were thirsty. They were dying of thirst because they had no water to drink. And so the people are, are literally... Die- and who dies when they lack water? It's not we healthy people. 
It's the weak. It's the infirmed. It's the young. It's the most vulnerable in society. The most vulnerable in the Israelite society begin to die because Moses, God has led them to Rephidim. And so what do they do? They Now here's the thing, they quarrel with Moses. And if you see in your text, it says, therefore the people quarreled with Moses. Now if you know your biblical history, you know that the Israelites are always fussing. They're always whining, they're always complaining, they're always, you know, they're always grumping about something or other. This is the only time in Scripture where the Israelites quarrel. Now, when I think of quarrel, I think of the spats that I get into with my wife, you know, where, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. All right, when I think, that's what I think of when I think of quarreling. That's not, the term here is quarreling. It's a term that is used between two, uh, riv is the Hebrew word if you're interested in that. The riv is an interaction between two lawyers. It's the kind of quarreling that leads to a lawsuit or a criminal accusation. Here, when the Israelites come and they quarrel with Moses and with the Lord, they're not just saying, eh, we're tired because we're running out of water. No, they're actually bringing a legal charge against Moses. They're bringing a legal charge against God. Well, what's the legal charge that they're bringing? Well, it's easy to see when you read here. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. They said, give us water to drink. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Because Moses is saying, well, you know, don't, don't yell at me. I'm just following the pillar just like all the rest of you. The pillar stops here, we stop here. That's kind of the idea. Why are you putting the Lord to the test? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill all of us? So listen to what the accusation that the Israelites are making. Now this is, once again, uh, when you step back and you think about this, you're stunned. You're like, wait, this can't possibly be that the God who so passionately loves the Israelites, who takes them up out of bondage, who takes them from the worst possible scenario you can imagine, and then says, no, I'm going to free you so that you might worship me, and you're on your way to a land full of milk and honey. It's all the glorious things you can possibly imagine. And the people turn around and accuse them of killing them. Some of you who are parents experience this all the time. Because, you know, what do we want? We want the best for our children. We want to give our kids everything we possibly can. Mom, you hate me. You know, you hate me, Mom. You want to kill my life. You want to ruin my life. You know, and we're sitting there thinking, just the opposite. Every, it couldn't be more opposite. I want to give you every... And here, the Israelite people are looking at their Lord, who is doing everything for them, for their betterment and for their good. And he says, oh, they're trying to... You're, you're trying to kill us all. You're trying to create genocide. And you can tell that this is a legal accusation because what does Moses says say in verse 6 he says they're ready or the end of verse 4 they're ready to stone me now we all know what stoning is you know you bury somebody in stones um, but most of us don't realize that in the scriptures that's a very legal action you just can't stone somebody outright because you don't like them that's not the way you murder somebody that's the way that the society as a whole executes someone this is when you get the picture of the adulteress who was dragged before Jesus, and they say, you know, what do we do with this woman? Do we, should we stone her, you know? And Jesus, they're asking for a legal accusation against this woman. So here, Moses is about ready to get stoned by these people because they are bringing this lawsuit against God. They are accusing God 
of trying to kill all of the Israelites. So verse 4, Moses cries out to the Lord. Moses cries out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, when he cries out to the Lord, again, this is something that everyone in this room can do. Read your Bible slowly. Slow down. Challenge your assumptions and say, hey, this is God speaking to me. How do I understand what he says to me? When the text here says, Moses cried out to the Lord, most of us know what that means like in our own life. Uh, you know, I've got traffic in the, in the tunnels and I'm late. You know, I'm crying out to the Lord, Lord, please do this. Or I'm uh, struck by a tragedy and I'm crying. Or some of us last night watching the TV because of what happened here down the road, we're crying. We're like, oh, Lord, crying out to the Lord means in our hearts. You know, we just, oh, cry. But remember, that's not how Moses did it. How did Moses speak to God? He goes into the tabernacle, the tabernacle, the center spot of the Israelites' encampment where they worship God, which is that spot where God's Shekinah glory, that pillar of fire, that pillar of cloud, fills the tabernacle and where only Moses was allowed in. The Levites, whenever they were moving the place, only Moses is allowed into the presence of God. So Moses is floating around among the people and they're starting to complain and they're starting to get all worked up and they're starting to say, hey, you're trying to kill us here. And Moses says, now just a minute. And he walks into the tabernacle, into the, the, the Shekinah glory. All the people are on the outside. And Moses is in there saying, God, they're trying to kill me. They're getting ready to kill me. Verse 5. God says to Moses, So the Lord says to Moses, Pass on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. So Moses is in the tabernacle. He's in the tabernacle in the, in the cloud with God. And all the people are outside. They're all agitated. Suddenly Moses comes striding out of the cloud. He comes striding out and he moves on ahead of the people is the way the phrase is. Okay, so what does he do? He takes with him a number of people, the elders of Israel, and he separates himself from the people. Okay, you people, you stay there. Moses comes over there and take with you the staff. Now, not just the staff, but the staff with which you struck the Nile. And I sit there and think, why does God explain which staff? You know, Moses, in your wardrobe, where you have your 50 staffs, grab the one. You know, it's none of that stuff. You know, He's only got one staff, and it's take that staff. But God specifies, it's the staff with which you judged the Nile, the Nile, the, the, the God of the Egyptians, the lifeblood of the Egyptians. You'll remember the story back there where Moses takes a staff and he strikes the water and all the water turns to blood. The judgment staff, the staff of power. A little bit later in, in the story, Moses is going to strike the earth with it and cause an earthquake that's going to swallow up all the rebellious people. I mean, this is a power staff. So here's all the people complaining against Moses. And then Moses is, walks, separates himself, leaves the, the tabernacle, grabs his staff of power, and separates himself away from all the people. And he plants himself there and he's glaring at them. And then he brings with him all the elders, or the elders of Israel. I don't know how many. Let's say 12. The 12 tribes, it's a good number. He takes with him 12 elders. Now, they're quarreling with Moses. They bring a lawsuit against God. They are accusing him. They've indicted God for genocide. 
And so God says, fine. You want to have a trial? Let's have a trial. Moses, grab your staff. Now, the judgment, the, the, grab your judgment staff and then get a jury together. Get those 12, it, it, 12 elders to stand over there with you. So we've got us and them, you know, and the people out there are the, are the prosecutors. They're the ones that are bringing the charge. Moses is the judge with the staff here. The elders are the jury. What are we missing? Next verse. Middle of... Next verse. The Lord says to Moses, Pass on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb. I want to ask you guys a question. The only time in Scripture where it's phrased like that. When you meet with God, will you stand before Him? Or will He stand before you? Every once in a while I run into people that say, I can't wait till I get to heaven. I get to talk to God. I'm going to wag my finger at Him. And I immediately run away from them just in case God zaps them right at the minute. I don't want collateral damage. You know, you're sitting there thinking, you've got to be kidding me. And yet here in Scripture, the most amazing thing God stands before Moses. God stands before Moses. Now, again, we kind of just naturally fall into that in our own thinking, that here you've got God who's eternally present everywhere. What does it mean that He stands before? Well, God just kind of is there because He's there. No, in this period, think about how God shows up there to stand next to Moses. So Moses is standing here. Who are we missing in our trial, by the way? We've got the judge, we've got the jury, we've got the prosecutor. Who are we missing? The defendant. And what happens? How does God stand on the rock beside Moses? So there's this big rock right here. Let's assume it's this thing here. Uh, and here's, here's Moses with his staff. Here's the, the defendant's spot. What happens? That Shekinah glory. That physical presence of God. That tower, that pillar of fire, that pillar of cloud lifts up from the tabernacle, moves over to where Moses is, and settles down on the rock that is right there. Now there are some sensitive people in the crowd who are sitting there thinking, okay, the staff of power is over there. The elders are over there. Now God shows up over there. I don't want to be over here. You know, I mean, they're sitting there thinking, this kind of looks bad. All the big powers are on this side and I'm over here with the people that are complaining. I kind of think. So, all right. So we've got the pillar of fire settles down upon this rock. Moses, strike the rock. With what? With that staff of power. With the staff with which you judged the Egyptian gods. That staff with which you killed the god of the Nile. The staff with which you killed the god of the Egyptians. Strike the rock. What rock? The rock of Horeb. The rock where God is standing. So Moses takes his staff, raises it above his head. All the people go, scatter and flee. Okay, he raises up the power, the staff of power, and then he says, God, could you lift up your cloud foot there for a second so I can get under there and tap the... It's not what he does. How does he strike the rock? Moses takes the staff, raises it over his head, 
And all the people there, well aware that that staff, by all rights, should fall upon them. For though they're dying of thirst, though they're the ones that are, they have accused their loving Lord of killing them. They know where that blow should fall. And yet Moses turns then and with this God-killing staff strikes the cloud. He strikes the rock and with the God-killing blow goes right through the staff and whacks a rock. The blow that should have fallen on the Israelites instead falls upon their God. And what comes flowing out of the wound of the God-sacrificed rock is the lifeblood, the very thing that the Israelites need in order to live, the life-giving water. The sacrifice of our God, the, the blow that should fall upon us, has fallen upon God himself on the cross of Jesus Christ. And out of the wounds come what flow, the very thing that we need to live, the life-saving blood of Jesus Christ. Moses called the place Massa and Meribah. Massa and Meribah. Because the people asked, is the Lord among us or not? There's this massive pillar of fire right in the middle of how can you ask that question? What the Lord does in your life every single day, regardless of what happens, how can you possibly ask that question? Is the Lord among us or not? Does the Lord care? He cares so much that he sacrifices himself. It's the only way to make sense of what happened yesterday. Our God cares so much that he sacrifices himself so that we might live. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we come uh, incredibly overwhelmed by the gift that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. That in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our guilt, where we indeed should be the ones who receive the punishment, the wrath that is coming, that in that amazing way, you have instead turned that wrath and you have poured that upon Jesus Christ in our stead so that we might live. Lord, we give you the great thanks and praise that is due your name, now and forevermore. Amen.